Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I'd go to the moon in a nanosecond. Uh, the problem is we don't have the technology to do that anymore. We used to, but we uh, destroyed that technology and uh, it's a painful process to build it back again. When you said that just now, did it sound stupid to you? Kind of. We're not being told the truth, or at least the total truth. Uh, let's put it this way. Money trumps um, peace sometimes. <laughs> In other words, commercial interests are very powerful interests. Oh, well, if you were a man, I would punch you. I'd punch you right in the mouth. That's Bush. Bush League. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Made in America. <laughs> what the fuck is with this guy? Who is he? Now I'm questioning everything. I'm going to do my own research, which is always dangerous because that involves reading. I'm your huckleberry. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. You sit on a throne of lies. Is there a secret history of the United States intentionally hidden by the mainstream media? Could there be a secret society of fat money businessmen whose agenda has been the cause of every major war and economic depression? It's on my I've witnessed firsthand the power of ideas. I've seen people kill in the name of them. And die defending them. But you cannot kiss an idea. Cannot touch it or hold it. Ideas do not bleed. They do not feel pain. They do not laugh. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to another edition of Storytime. Tonight, this one's for my mass holes, my Massachusetts residents. We did Connecticut last time with the 5th century Connecticut church. Tonight, I have a special for you about the Dighton Rock here in Massachusetts. But before we get to that, wanted to go over a few items first. Obviously, reviews. Guys, do me a favor. If you could share the show, leave a review, whether it's on Google, Apple, whatever uh, pod player you listen to. But here, Jay Montana rocks. I appreciate it, brother. Five-star, must listen podcast. If you're looking for well-researched information that reveals the truth, or if you're just looking for entertainment, this is your one-shop stop, so to speak. Matt does not disappoint. Appreciate it, my man. And that's that's as simple as it gets, guys. Took took a couple seconds to leave a comment. And what that does is that helps the more reviews we get, the more chance we get to get in the algorithm. So when people search, we got a shot of being in there. So that is big in today's day and age, especially when we're trying to grow the show and grow the base. Um, what was I looking for here? So 
what we are going to take a look at. Let's see. Nope. Not that. Not that. Not that. Here we go. All right. So let's go with. So here's what we have. This right here, okay, is what we're going to talk about here in a minute. But first, again, guys, patreon.com slash the great deception podcast. Uh, this will be dropping on Friday this evening. We have our patrons only call um, once a month. I All my patrons, that's a benefit of being on the Patreon is we have a Zoom call. Everybody gets together. I usually have it open for two or three hours. Pop in as you want. Hop in. We have some great discussions. We talk about anything from old world, architecture, um, current events, anything that's really going on. We You can bring it up. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about their local area and what they found, and which I am fascinated by. So, guys, if you're... You want to find some more content? The Patreon is the place to go. Great Deception Podcast on Patreon.com. We have uh, about 25 books out there right now. All of the video of Monday Night Master Debaters. It's the only spot you're going to find it. And then all the videos that I do for The Great Deception as well are up there first. I do post some of the videos, not Monday Night Master Debaters, but some of the videos to YouTube but it's always later. So if you want to watch the videos right away, hop on the Patreon. So we're good there. Housekeeping is done. Now let's get on to the Dighton Rock. Now, again, this is one where I think I've heard about this before, but I I wasn't familiar with it. Um, because, it's again, it's one of these relics, guys, that just seems so out of place. We're talking Dighton, Massachusetts. There is, I believe it's about a 40, what do they say? Uh, it's, I believe it's a 40 ton, yeah, 40 ton rock, five feet high, nine and a half feet wide, and 11 feet long. And it has these inscriptions on it. And, you know, based on the tide where it was placed originally, you could see it sometimes and not see it others. So we're going to take a look at this little store. I'm going to I'm going to go through and dig through a couple of articles here that I found on this. Um, one of them being this one, the Enigma of the Dighton Rock. OK, this is from Edward Brecker, uh, June 1958. <clears throat> and so it says for nearly three centuries, men have speculated on its mysterious inscription. And that's the deal with this. There is no real answer. Nobody seems to know. So the Dighton Rock is a mysterious tide-washed boulder that juts up out of the Taunton River at Asinot Neck, just across from the town of Dighton, Mass., and the Dighton Yacht Club. To yachtsmen sailing the river, and even some of the residents of Asinot Neck, it looks like just another rock, about 11 feet long, 5 feet high, standing where the river widens abruptly on its way to Mount Hope Bay in the Atlantic Ocean. Until recently, no road had led to it, and few travelers ventured uh, to follow the unmarked path which took them to the site. 
Yet to historians and archaeologists, the rock has been a focus of marvel and speculation ever since the year A.D. 1690, when Reverend Cotton Mather, of witchcraft and brimstone fame, described it and the curious message engraved on its weathered red-brown sandstone face. Among the other curiosities of New England, uh, Mather wrote 268 years ago in the wonderful works of God commemorated, one is that of a mighty rock on a perpendicular side, whereof by a river, which the high tide covers part of it, there are very deeply engraved. No man alive knows how or when about half the score lines, nearly 10 foot long and a foot and a half broad filled with strange characters, which would suggest as odd thoughts them that were here before us, as there are odd shapes in that elaborate monument. Who carved the baffling message into the face of the rock? And what does the message say? From Cotton Mather's day to ours, there's been a lack of imaginative theories. For example, 1781, can't, uh, Count Antoine uh, Court de Gevelin of Paris announced that he fathomed the secret. Dighton Rock commemorated the visit to Massachusetts in very ancient times of a shipload of seamen from Carthage who lived uh, for a while on the Mount Hope Bay and established friendly relations with the Indians there. The drawings on the rock, de Gevelin said, portray the leaders of the expedition consulting an oracle in order to select an auspicious moment for the perilous voyage back to Carthage. Then in 1807, Samuel Harris Jr., a Harvard scholar, declared that he was able to decipher the face of the rock, three ancient Hebrew words in Phoenician letters, king, priest, and idol. Then we have 1831. Ira Hill, a Maryland school teacher, concluded that the rock engraved in the second month of the 10th year of the reign of King Solomon by an expedition of Tyrians and Jews, such as the ones described in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 9. And King Solomon uh, made a navy of ships in, as in, I don't know, and Hiram sent his, in his navy of servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. And they came to Ophir, and fetched from thence gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. The drawings on the rock, Hill firmly believe, mapped in detail the voyage from the eastern Mediterranean through the Pillars of Hercules, past the Canary Islands, across the Atlantic to Assinet Neck. Underlying such nonsense of lower solid facts, that's why I love this guy. He, he just pulls no punches. Dighton Rock, unlike some uh, dubious, more recently discovered, quote-unquote, written rocks, cannot be a modern forgery. And that's the difference here, guys. A lot of these, you know, old ancient rocks that they find, they're forgeries. They're fakes. This one has stood the test of time and has passed all the tests so far. It shows some trace of vandalism. The initials of Taurus, for example, and an inscription reading perhaps engine trail to spring in swamp. And then it has an arrow yards 167. But the bulk of the writing cannot be similarly explained. The Reverend John Danforth made a sketch of the marks engraved in the rock in 1860. This sketch has been preserved in a British museum. A comparison of Danforth's sketch um, 
let's see. This sketch has been preserved by the British Museum. A comparison of Danforth's sketch with the appearance of the rock today leaves no room for the doubt the inspection Danforth saw in uh, 1680 is still there. So that's the thing they're talking about here is, uh, let me see. Yeah. So let me share this. Okay, so this is the inscriptions that they're talking about. This is what they found on the rock. And what you'll see is it's just a smorgasbord of different stuff. You have different uh, layers and depths to it. That's what these kind of dotted lines and, and different um, patterns on here is is kind of trying to show you the depth of these and, and what they would actually see on the rock. And it's quite interesting because you see all sorts of things scribbles some what look to be letters of some sort um you know little people i don't really see any animals being hunted and anything like that or i don't see how this would map their journey but again i'm not an expert i'm not seeing this with the same eyes they are so um let's go back to the article so now, <clears throat> Mr. Mr. Brecker goes on to say, the lines in the rock were carved by human hands. They were not mere cracks or products of freezing and weathering, which you would see a lot here in the Northeast, obviously. If the markings are just doodles, casually carved by Indians who had nothing better to do, they are surely among the most laborious doodles of all time. Even with a modern steel chisel, it would take many hours, even days, to duplicate the inscription. The rock is partly submerged much of the time, right? So you have to remember this, as high tide comes in, this rock is, you know, you can barely see the top of it, they say. So doodlers might have had to stand in salt water up to their knees or waists. More convenient rocks were available for casual doodlings. And again, we're talking about New England water. New England water doesn't get warm until about July. And then it's cold by the end of August, early September. So, yeah, you're not going to spend a lot of time in the ocean sitting there doodling, as they say. Messages blazoned on the offshore surface of the rock facing the water, and the rock itself stands at a point where it would be conspicuous to any small vessel exploring the coast or putting into the Taunton River for fresh water. Through the centuries, therefore, most speculation has sought to interpret the carvings as a message left by visitors uh, to the coast intended to catch the eye of subsequent maritime explorers passing that way. The most influential of the theories clustering about the rock was one published in 1837 by a Danish scholar, Carl Christian Rahn. Rahn, uh, Rain, I mean, uh, had spent many years poring over the Icelandic manuscripts that told of early Viking voyages to the West. It was he who unearthed the new familiar story, uh, Old Leaf, the Lucky, and his voyage in the year 1000 to three North American regions called Hololand, Markland, and Vinland. And Ryan, I can't even, it's R-A-F-N now. He keeps changing it every single time. Also came upon the saga of Thorfinn Karlsson who seven years later sailed even further southward along the North American coast to a place called Hop. Thorfinn was accompanied by his wife, Gudrida, a Hop, according to the saga. 
a boy named Snorro was born to them. But where was Hop? In an effort to find out, the Danish scholar sent letters of inquiry to various American historical societies. Had the Vikings perchance left any traces along the American coast? One of Rain's letters uh, aroused the Rhode Island Historical Society to action. Was it possible the learned members asked themselves that Dighton Rock bore a Viking message? A special committee was formed to cooperate with Rain. Several uh, expeditions were sent to the rock and a drawing of the inscription scrupulously prepared and checked was forwarded to Denmark. On it, Rain's associates, Finn Magnuson, like many others before and since, found just what they had been seeking. They had reported indubitably proof, indubitable proof, that Hop lay on the Taunton River. Dighton Rock, they announced, portrayed pic- in pictures precisely the episode described in the Norse sagas, the famous ship of Thorfinn Karlsson, as it first set out to Vinland and came to the shore. With a wind vane attached to the mast, his wife Gudrida, seated on the shore, holds in her hands a key to the conjugal dwelling. Beside her stands their three-year-old son, Snorro, born in America. A cock announces by his crowning uh, domestic peace, as do also the shield at rest and the inverted helmet. Then suddenly, approaching war is indicated. Thorfinn, leader of the colonists, seizes his shield and endeavors to protect himself against the approaching Skrellings, who violently assail the Scandinavians, armed with clubs or branches, with bows and arrows, and furthermore with a military machine, unknown to us, in which Thorfinn's history called a ballista. So it sounds like some sort of arrow or projectile shooting device, you know, like you would think like a crossbow or something like that. To support this interpretation, Rain and Magnuson even deciphered the runic characters on the drawing, which spelled out the word Nam Thorfinn's and the Roman numerals CXXXI. Um, This they interpreted to mean Thorfinn and his 151 companions took possession of this land. The CXXXI was the clincher. For did not the sagas themselves report that Thorfinn's party numbered 151? True, the Roman numerals CXXXI ordinarily stand for 131, but Rain pointed out that the C might stand for the Norse 100, or or great 100, 10 dozen, or 12. In that case, the inscription and the saga would jibe. It would be 151, obviously. So let's see. Rain's researches excited international enthusiasm and from 1837 on the theory of the pre-Columbian explorations of North America by Vikings was almost universally accepted. Dighton Rock formed the last link in a long chain of evidence for it marked the site of Hop, then Helluland, Markland, and Vinland, were surely Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and either Cape Cod or Nantucket. Alas, the Viking theory of the rock was completely demolished in 1916 by the late professor Edmund B. Delabar, a Brown of Brown University. Uh, Delabar, a 
psychologist as well as a little literary detective bought a summer home within a mile of the rock in 1912 and for the next 33 years devoted much of his scholarly energies to a study of its fabulous history. Most current knowledge of the rock is based squarely on his researches. In studying Rain's interpretation of the message, Delabari uh, procured photographs of the Rhode Island Historical Society's original drawings from the Royal Library of Denmark in Copenhagen and was amaz- amazed to find gross discrepancies between the Society's actual drawings and the doctored-up copies reproduced for Rain's book. Rain added that many lines to support his theory. And that's the bullshit of it, right? Now you're starting to see when you have to add and manipulate to fit your picture, it starts to unravel. So here we go. On the drawing, as he presented it, Del Bari noted, Rain attempted to distinguish by his own additions, drawing them with shaded lines. Unfortunately, the shadings were not very distinct and are easily overlooked. With Rain's doctored, uh, doctoring eliminated, the whole Viking interpretation of the Dighton Rock inscription collapsed. Dighton Rock, Del Bari concluded, was in all probability just one more example of the essentially meaningless markings often scratched into the rocks by Indians. And as a psychologist, he was able to explain why so many scholars had been deluded through the centuries. The rock, he declared, has an almost hypnotic effect on those who study it intently. In this respect, it resembles a device known as the Rorschach test used by psychologists to dredge up unconscious levels of mind. The Rorschach test presents um, lore interpretation, colored ink blots printed on white cards. One man sees essentially meaningless blots, a series of catastrophes, ships sinking, churches burning, volcanoes erupting. Another sees scenes of personal conflict, mothers scolding children, brothers fighting against brother. Dighton Rock, Professor Delavari concluded uh, after long and intensive study, had since Cotton Mather's day been serving as an inkblot for researchers, enabling them to see on it not what is really there, but rather interpretations and thoughts they have brought with them to the rock. Guys, this sounds like a lot of these researchers out there today, right? They're not bringing facts. They're bringing you the coincidences that fit their picture, fit their case, and leave out everything else. Very interesting. This has been going on forever. To illustrate this theory of a psychic projection, Professor Del Bari told the story of a 19th century anthropologist, Henry Rose Schoolcraft, who, like many others, was convinced that the inscription was of Indian origin. Schoolcraft took a drawing of the rock uh, to the learned sage Chingwok, an Algonquin-skilled Kikiwin, or Indian picture drawing. Chingwok and a friend examined the drawing briefly, after which Chingwok announced, It is Indian. It appears to me and my friend to be a Muzunibik, which is rock writing. It relates to two nations. He then disappeared into his teepee with the drawing and emerged the next day with the complete translation of the inscription into Algonquin. Chinwak's rendition was as preposterous as all the others. Delbari could readily explain such aberrations of the human mind. Everyone knows how easy it is to see pictures that at least almost seem real. 
things in clouds, in flames, in embers, in wallpaper patterns, in the graining of wood, in the veining of marble, in the frost-covered window panes. Whenever we can, we tend to find something definite in the faint and orderly, in the confused, and to trust what we find. There's a pleasure in seeing uncertainties and irregularities resolve themselves into definite form, and the forms take on connected and acceptable meaning. It is critical uh, if the critical attitude be not aroused to find no support, if no conflicting appearances or beliefs occur in the mind, if rival possibilities arouse no liking, the apperceptibility constructed object, uh, yeah, cons- constructed object must be believed to be external, right? And this is where our eyes can really deceive us. And I posted something on Instagram earlier this week uh, about a drawing and a guy drew an image on a piece of paper and then he folded the paper to a 90 degree angle. And as you moved, you would see it go from a perfect square to kind of a trapezoid shape. And it was just a bunch of lines on a flat piece of paper. So your eyes can deceive you and your brain wants to make you think that's like the people who look up at the clouds and they're like, Oh, that cloud looks like an elephant. Well, it may look like an elephant to you. And the more you look at it, you may be convinced it's an elephant, but then you ask the person next to you, no, it looks like a fucking puffy cloud. What are you talking about? So Dighton Rock Delbari continued is an ideal stimulus for such subjective apperceptions. It presents an abundance of lines that are faint and doubtful and a vast confusion of other marks that are clearly observable and may or may not be artificial. There are numberless little pittings and protrusions, irregularities of texture, although eroded remnants of undecipherable characters, minute cracks, light reflections varying from dark to bright, forming dots and blotches, small differences in color. Such materials can be woven together uh, apperceptively into thousands of varying forms. Indeed, at the end of a long day spent poring over his collection of the Dighton Rock drawings and photographs, Delbari jo- jotted his conclusion in his notebook. After prolonged and close searching, I got so that I could find any given figure almost anywhere. So depending on which way his mind went, he could see whatever he wanted in this inscription, he said. So he completed his monumental history of the rock in 1918 and was assembling illustrations for publications when, wait a minute, what was that? Looking once more very intently at an 11-year-old photograph of the rock on his desk, Del Bari made a most curious and unexpected discovery. It may well be imagined, he later wrote. With what astonishment on examining the photograph for the hundredth time, I saw clearly and unmistakable the date 1511. No one had ever seen it before on the rock or photograph, yet once seen, its genuine presence on the rock cannot be un- cannot be doubted. Again, guys, this is like another thing I put on. I keep going back to Instagram posts, but there's that post with the, the styrofoam trays. I don't know if you all have seen this, but there's a you know probably about six different styrofoam trays on in the picture one of them is face up the normal way the others are all upside down and when you look at them they all look upside down until you notice the one that is right side up and then when you notice that one they all appear to be right side up it's an optical illusion so now what he's saying is okay now this time i see it 
got to have a little skepticism here because this guy's been all over the map so far. Further study thereafter enabled Del Barrio to decipher, along with the date, the emblazoned shield or quinas of the Kingdom of Portugal and these graven levers, Miguel Cortareal V. de Hiduxind. Even the first year Latin student could puzzle out the meeting, Miguel Cortareal, by the will of God, here leader of the Indians. Who was Miguel Cortareal? He was the son of a Portuguese official, João Vaz Cordereal. According to family tradition, João sailed to Newfoundland in Labrador in 1472, 20 years before Columbus. Yeah, there you go, two decades before Columbus's voyage. Whether or not João actually made that voyage, there can be no doubt that his son Casper set sail from Portugal for the west in Columbus's wake with three ships in 1501. Caspar's vessels coasted along Labrador, Newfoundland, and Nova Scotia. Then, while two of his ships returned home safely, he turned the flagship south along the coast for further exploration. Nothing more was ever heard of Gaspar. The following year, beyond any reasonable doubt, Miguel Correal sailed west in search of his brother. His two vessels reached Newfoundland in the early summer of 1502 and then separated, agreeing to rendezvous on August 20th. When Miguel failed to reach the rendezvous, the other ship returned to Portugal without him. Nothing more was ever heard of Miguel, unless Del Bari was right in believing that Dighton Rot records his final message to the civilization he left behind. Perhaps, Del Bari uh, speculated, on the basis of local Indian traditions and other clues, Miguel Cordereal reached Mount Hope Bay in 1502 and sent men ashore near the site of Dighton Rock. Perhaps there was a battle with the Wampanoag Indians, or perhaps a shipwreck, or perhaps, for other reasons, Miguel joined the Wampanoag. Because he possessed firearms and other marvelous equipment and skills, he was an obvious candidate for leadership. No doubt he kept close watch for vessels along the coast, but by 1511, his hopes for rescue having dimmed, he carved a message on a rock where it would stand for future generations. Delbarri's theory is widely accepted in Portugal. He was decorated by the Portuguese government for his researches, and his name is still held in affection among the large Portuguese-speaking population centered around Fall River, Massachusetts, which is ironically where I got my dog from. Half a dozen miles from the rock. The rock has even become a local a political football in the Taunton, Fall River, New Bedford area. Anyone in those parts who cast doubt on the Portuguese origin of the inscription is in danger of being viewed as almost a traitor. Thanks to this renewed interest, steps are underway to preserve the rock for future generations. In 1857, the rock and the acre of... Uh, Tideland, on which it stands, were purchased for Old Bull, the world-renowned uh, Scandinavian violinist. And in 1860, they were presented as a gift to Denmark's Royal Society of Antiquarians. But no arrangements were made to safeguard the inscription from weathering, tidal erosion, or casual carvings by vandals or thoughtless tourists. In 1889, title passed from the Royal Society to the old Colony Historical Society of Taunton, Mass., and a collection of photographs and documents concerning the rock were assembled in the Society's Museum on Church Green in Taunton, where they are open to inspection by the public. 
1955, the society deeded the rock at uh, to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the Massachusetts le- legislature appropriately uh, appropriated the necessary funds to convert the area into a new state park, with the rock to be moved to higher ground uh, out of the reach of the tides and readily accessible from the Fall River Boston Expressway a few miles away. Construction of the new park is underway. Uh, was Delabari right in assuming the writings on the rock Miguel Cortreal, or was he too the victims of the rock hypnotic spell? Where scholars disagree, laymen are left to form their own opinions. So study the photographic drawings on the rock for yourself. Do like Professor Del Barre, see Cordereal's name. Do you see Cordereal's name and the date 1511? Or do you see something else which no one has ever seen before on the rock or photograph, but which one scene cannot thereafter be doubted? And that's why this is such a mystery, okay? Because you have this guy, Del Bari. Now, you have other people. And, and what I wanted to do was I wanted to actually show you guys. I didn't, haven't shown much of the rock. But here is what where it stood originally, okay? And this is from 1893 is when they took this photograph. So if we look at it, I mean, you can see here you can see where it would be buried during tide because tide's going to come up. This is low tide, obviously. And this is a massive rock. Now, does it kind of look like doodles? Yeah, a little bit. You know? Um, and you look at this and it does kind of look like some doodles. Now, what I want to also say, though, is that people disagree. This is, okay, so this is where the rock is today in the museum. Obviously, they moved it up out of the water. And here is what it looks like today in the museum. Just sitting there. And I'll put these links in the show notes, guys. But uh, I just, I found it. Oh, we'll get into that in a minute. So, um let me go back now let's go back to these drawings okay and here here's kind of okay so if we're looking at it this is where when we go back to the drawing i'll go back to it in a second here on the lower left you're supposed to be able to see 1511 around across and in the middle here is where he's saying is miguel Cordereal. so let's go back to the rock Uh, yeah. Okay, so as you can see, that is a, that's what we're looking at. So, fifteen eleven is supposed to be somewhere over in here, and then Miguel Cordelan is supposed to be in here. I don't see it. You know, I'm also not really uh, an expert on this and haven't. And actually, one of the things I do plan on doing is going and taking a look at some of this source material. Um, But what I found interesting is there was an article by John Gallagher. 
Okay. And John Gallagher is the same guy who wrote the article on the fifth century church in Connecticut. And he has a totally different view on this rock. He believes that it's Phoenician. He says, um, evidence of yet another script is found on the boulder in the form of five white dots above a horizontal line for the word Awawa or one who shouts, you know, an announcer, he says in Numidian and Tifeneg, a language spoken in North Africa, Morocco, Libya during the Roman era, Awawa was Numidian Tifang for the constellation Boots, Botes. Okay, so let's go here. Throughout the centuries, Gallagher says, the Titan rock has been linked to Egyptians, Etruscans, Romans, Hittites, Vandals, Vikings, Indians, Atlanteans, the lost tribe of uh, Israel, and medieval Portuguese. He says it is none of those. His belief is that the letters on the stone clearly are Iberian Punic, as developed by 500 BC. He claims the Phoenicians carried their Punic language into Spain nearly a thousand years earlier when it was adopted by the Iber Iberic natives as their own variant, Iberian Punic. So and he says, and Dighton Rock is not the only specimen of this script found in North America. Other examples include West Virginia's Adena Stone, the uh, Aptuxet Rock in central Vermont, in the Davenport tablet in Davenport, Iowa. Language experts, beginning with the renowned uh, epigrapher Dr. Barry Fell, have dated these inscriptions from roughly 600 to 200 BC. So that's about 2,000 to 1,800 years prior to what Delabare just said of it being 1511. So Gallagher goes on to say, none of this, however, begins to explain why anyone from ancient Spain would have bothered with a transatlantic voyage to Massachusetts, not what they intended by inscribing so many astronomical symbols on the boulder at Taunton River. A closer look suggests the answer. Of the 20 brightest stars in, in the heavens, 13 appear on Dighton Rock, including Polaris and Sirius, the brightest star of all. In a particularly revealing Rebus spells out BDCU, which means serve Setu, the whale in the constellation Setus. These hints suggest that the artists who adorned this lonely boulder were seafarers who etched prominent signs of their celestial navigation on its surface, thereby making it North America's oldest known sky chart, star chart. First, came Iberian Punic-speaking voyagers from the 6th century BC Spain, followed by North African sailors, probably during the early Roman era, as indicated by the appearance of two distinct written languages at Dighton Rock. The separate syllabaries imply that it was not inscribed by hapless castaways. Instead, what long afterward became Massachusetts must have been reportedly visited by sailors from the uh, ancient Old World, who would have come, as the French and English later would, for the abundance of furs they obtained in the trade with the ancestors of the local Wampanoag tribes. So he has a totally different view. And uh, actually, let me, let me see if I can find it, because I have what he's talking about here. 
and we will show it. All right, let's see. Let's share this. Okay. So these are some of the inscriptions that he ha has found on the rock. So these are what he is claiming to be the stars, of the constellation. So you have the eagle, which is a aquila, Ursa Minor, which is little bear, uh, Botez, which he was just talking about, which is the herdsman, the serpent or the serpents, the Pleiades. He's got Pisces, supposedly, Taurus or the bull. He's got uh, Lepus, the hare. He's got Leo the lion, Cancer, which is the crab, Canis Major, which is the greater dog. I mean, you're seeing, he, he found all of these in there. Now, do I see all of that also? Not really. I mean, I guess I do. Let's see if I go to, all right, let's look at it again. It's one that, guys, you're going to have to take a look at, okay? Now, there's one more thing I wanted to share before we get out of here, which is the uh, some other of these uh, mysterious ancient stones and carved rocks in North America. So you have New England's Mystery Stone. This thing is wild. You look at this stone, and it's an egg shaped with a face carved into it. So it says the mystery stone is on display at a museum of the New Hampshire history in Concord, New Hampshire. The stone is believed to have been discovered in 1872 by workers digging for a fence post near Lake Winnipesaukee. But no one knows for sure who made it, why, how, or when it was made. That's pretty sick. Then you got the mysterious uh, Jatakula rock contain uh where is this jetacula rock a sacred stone in, uh it's in north carolina so that's a cool stone then you have the born stone in born massachusetts it's crazy all these petroglyphs and this is what the um the one that they were referencing, this is the uh, Grave Creek Stone of Moundsville, West Virginia. This is what Gallagher was talking about, how there's others that match the Phoenician writing. Um, you have the Rune Stones of Oklahoma, which is called the, the Heavener Rune Stone. Now you have the Shawnee Rune Stone. Look at that. The Kensington runestone, that one's pretty famous. That one's in, uh, what? That's Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, Los Lunas Decalogue stone in New Mexico. So, guys, you're finding these all over the country. There's our boy on top of Dighton Rock. And you always see the guy with the hat, right? And here's the Rizzo stone. That's pretty amazing. And it, guys, what this just does, and here's the Davenport stone. What this does is it just destroys the bullshit Columbus narrative that they have built so much of their fake tradition on about this land. 
These stones are thousands of years old. And they want us to believe that our history is just white history. It's just that European, that all that stuff that happened before 1492, and then all that stuff that happened before 1850, it didn't really matter because it was manifest destiny for white Europeans to come here and conquer this land. It's just a lie. And it's, you know, it's our job to call them out on their lies. And for too long, we've believed their lies wholeheartedly and just accepted them. It's time to push back. Because much like this, this is just, it's bullshit, you know? I mean, we really, really got to, let's see if I can get some of these windows closed. All right, let's do this now. Let's. I want to just show you a couple pictures before we get out of here. Let's go. Nope, that's not it. Stop share. I don't want to show that. Okay, so let's see if we can share this now. Share, find it. Okay. Boom. Here we go. All right, now we're playing with fire. If we could only... There we go. All right, so let's go here. So we got this one. This is all the inscriptions. This is the drawing itself. All right, go take a look at these guys. Dighton Rock Museum. Here's the rock itself. There's the rock in its place in 1893. A little better detail of the inscription. And this is layered, guys. There's there's layers to the inscriptions, too, as you can see here. And here's where he tries to say that this is Miguel Corderial, but there's other etchings in there. So, again, you can see what you want in here. Your eyes will play tricks on you. And that's why you, you got to question everything. Oh, I don't have that picture in here. Oh, that's a bummer. Because Okay, let's go to Safari because we can't. We can't. We can't not show you. All right, let's see. Shrink this a little bit so we can get in here. All right, let's go to. You have to see this because it wouldn't be an 1800s photograph without, you know, a guy in a top hat, right? How fucking ridiculous is this, guys? Look at this. This jackass is posing with the rock in his top hat. Just always pictured in here, you know? It's 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 very interesting. So, with that, we are done for tonight. I hope you enjoyed story time. This was a fun one. 
we got many more of these to come. I got a lot of different stuff. And these are just two I just did because they're local. Um, I want to get into some other stuff. Uh, like here, I'll give you some examples. We got the creepiest myth from every state. We may look at that. Uh, uh, man-made earthquakes. I want to look at that. Show you guys some of that stuff. Um, what else do we got in here? We got some etheric energy stuff. We got uh, pipe organ, the world's largest pipe organ. Um, the Roman Empire never existed. This is, I mean, these are just some cool stories. And then, uh, so we'll get into those as we go along. But for tonight, that's where we're going to leave it off. So if you want to support the show, Great Deception Podcast at patreon.com patreon.com slash the great deception podcast you can get all my links on instagram at the great deception podcast i have a link tree in there and uh guys share the show leave a review tell your friends about it and if you find something you like pass it along that's the way this works right if you use social media share it on your on your feed that's how we uh we grow this little thing here but for tonight, that's all we got. I want you guys to enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the weekend and stay strong and question everything. Why are you guys so anti-dictators? Imagine if America was a dictatorship. You could let 1% of the people have all the nation's wealth. You could help your rich friends get richer by cutting their taxes and bailing them out when they gamble and lose. You could ignore the needs of the poor for healthcare and education. Your media would appear free but would secretly be controlled by one person and his family. You could wiretap phones. You could torture foreign prisoners. You could have rigged elections. You could lie about why you go to war. You could fill your prisons with one particular racial group and no one would complain. You could use the media to scare the people into supporting policies that are against their interests.